stand. We'll read a, a text today. We're going to be in 13 and 14. We'll read uh, some verses of 13 to get us started, though. First Samuel chapter 13. Let's read the first 14 verses. And uh, we immediately come to a problem uh, that uh, the first verse was lost early on, especially the numbers. And if you get the different translations, they all take a stab at it, but it's mostly guesswork. And uh, we'll deal a little bit with that as we go on here. The uh, ESV uh, basically uh, just leaves the numbers blank, which is the safe thing to do, I guess. So uh, there's a uh, one theory is that it's uh, basically saying that Saul was uh, had reigned one year, and then in a second year, when he reigned over Israel, what takes this? What follows takes place. That's certainly a possibility. Another is that he reigned uh, for so many years. Uh, but that again, it, it, since there's no actual numbers in the original as such, other than uh, it literally, from what we understand, is Saul was a son of one year, which again doesn't make any sense to us. And so, anyway, there's just a lot of speculation. Uh, one. Um, one uh, translation says Saul was 30 years old when, when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel, which is a possibility. But again, it's it's guesswork. Just so you know, that's why when you read verse one, it it it's, it might not make sense. And if it does make sense, it's because some the translators of that version have taken a stab at it. Right? Anyway, in the second verse, it says Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in the uh, Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called to join out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the ford of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Of course, that would have been on the other side of Jordan. And Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. And he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Remember, Samuel told him that, wait seven days, and I'll come and tell you what to do at that point. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Samuel or Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which 
with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the Lord what the Lord commanded you. So this begins to see, and it might appear on the surface that, well, boy, Saul, it wasn't all that bad. But what we're going to see is that this is a pattern and that it, it exposes his heart, which I think is why Saul, uh, Samuel says the Lord will establish a man after his own heart because that's Saul's problem. He really doesn't have a heart for the Lord. He <clears throat> outwardly conforms to Yahweh and all that, but Samuel had clearly told him to wait seven days and I will come and tell you what to do and uh, and you know, and I will offer the sacrifice, and Saul takes matters into his own hand because and we deal with that as we go on. So, just because this looks like a, uh, a like, like wow, why did God remove him from this? Well, it gets worse, and so God knows how Saul is going to live, the kind of man he is, anyway. So it doesn't take us long to see what kind of man Saul is, and thus what kind of king he is. Now, last week we saw the the one good thing in Saul's account was the one time he's seen in a good light, his victory over Nahash and the Amorites, which is the last time that we've seen the good light. But that does help establish his rule. Once he gets this great victory, Israel kind of embraces him as king. Uh, but then we saw Samuel uh, at the end there, uh, at kind of at Saul's coronation, say, uh, look, he, he offers an example of living with no regrets. He is trying to treat everyone fairly and the way the Lord would have him do so that he could come to the end of his life without all kinds of regrets. And it involved him being honest and fair and loving with the people. And so, it's just a reminder to us that, you know, live right now so that you can come to the end of your life without all kinds of regrets. And it doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect, that we're not going to have, certainly look back and say, boy, I could have done some things differently and should have done some things differently. But if, if we just, be, you know, be serious with the Lord and with, the, with and what being a Christian's all about uh, and treat people the way we want to be treated, uh, we can, we want, that should be a goal for us to be able to end our life like Samuel, right? And say, look, I, overall, I have tried to treat people rightly. People can, uh, you know, truly mourn at your funeral. You, know, you don't want to go to a funeral where everybody's kind of glad in the bottom, right? You, you want to be the person that people are sad that you're not, right? In, in, in a heartfelt way. So, yeah, I think it's just part of being a Christian. This is how we are to, uh, seek to live our life. But, um, as I said, so here we got Saul, and we, the, the first hit of trouble in this account is that it seems to always be his son Jonathan who actually does the fighting. And here Jonathan is said to have gained this great victory, but, and again, it might be reading too much into it in that particular case. Saul seems to get the credit for it. And it, but it seems again to be a pattern. We're, we're introduced to Jonathan here, and Jonathan is a great man. He he understands uh, his father's got problems. We'll see this in just a moment, 
and he's a great friend with David. They're, they're actually best friends. And even when he knows that David is going to take, eventually going to be king, Jonathan is okay with that. He loves the Lord. You know, he offers a great example of someone who I'm sure he loved his father, but he was not blinded by family. He, he understood who his father was. He understood that his father was going to eventually give, not be king anymore. And he's okay with that. He, 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 as a Christian, we should never let our love for anybody, whether it be our family or anybody else, blind us to who they really are, and especially when it comes to their spiritual condition. And so Jonathan just offers a great example. We don't read of anything bad about Jonathan. And we'll deal a little more with that in just a moment. <clears throat> um, but while he seems to be the one doing the actual fighting, we are reminded that no matter, you know, God can get his work done no matter. That none of us are indispensable. And uh, he always has other servants available. Someone made a good point that George Whitfield wouldn't have had to preach out in the fields back in the day, which is generally where he preached. Now, my one in one level, he gathered such great crowds that you would hard pressed, especially in America, the colonies, to find a, a building large enough. But he also was preaching something that wasn't in the Anglican churches. So in a sense, he's forced to preach it elsewhere because the preachers in the Anglican church at that time were not going to preach the gospel for the most part. But just a reminder that God has his servants, that his work's going to get done, and we can always take comfort in that, even when our leaders perhaps uh, don't, in, be our, don't end up being what they should be. And so here we come to this account where Saul jumps the gun, uh, you know, and, and it, it's possible that seven days had passed and they were in the eighth day, and so Saul says, well, John, you know, Saul's Samuel didn't come, but it, the account makes it sound like uh, it was the seventh day getting late and Samuel's not there, so Saul decides to take matters to his own hand. But either way, as soon as he disobeys the Lord, here comes Samuel to you know, because this is all being orchestrated by the Lord anyway. Uh, he certainly was never told to go ahead and make an offering. He was to wait for Samuel. That was the main thing. Samuel made it clear. The Lord wants you to wait for me. And that's where Saul failed. And this will, a very similar thing. We don't want to confuse this with the account that's coming with the Amalekites in a couple of chapters. Where uh, Saul... Uh, does not obey the Lord again. And that's where here Samuel tells Saul that your, your, your kingdom is going to eventually, uh, be given to somebody else. But with the Amalekites, that's where, uh, he makes it official, you might say. And we'll see that as we get into it. Um, so Saul is acting. This is, of course, part of his problem that we, well, circumstances now have dictated that I no longer do what the Lord tells me to do, but I've got to take matters into my own hand. Circumstances become my God. They become the word of God to me. And we dealt a little bit with that even last week. That we've got to be good that. I don't think I, I should have moved to that. Yeah, one more screen. Last week we talked about, reminded ourselves how circumstances and experiences couldn't always be interpreted as how well you were serving the Lord. And a little bit different spin on it there. 
uh, but all things have to be interpreted by the, the word of God. And so this is akin to kind of what we're seeing with Samuel or with Saul. And so just something to think about. Tragedy comes upon godly people and prosperity comes upon the wicked. So those two things cannot be used to determine how well I am spiritually, how much God loves me, or that God uh, is okay with someone who's living evil, right? Circumstances are not the word of God. And any preacher who stands up and says that if we are, if we have enough faith, if we are faithful to the Lord, that life will in somehow reflect that, or our physical life will reflect that, is a false prophet. It just, it is cannot be found in Scripture. Uh, you know, and, and using Old Testament examples is just a blatant disregard for good biblical interpretation, as we've said before, because we don't live under that physical covenant with physical blessings. <clears throat> so just some things to keep in mind. So here we got Saul letting circumstances dictate how he obeys and hears the word of God. I came across an interesting little story that took place back in back in the day. This was uh, back in the days of James the uh, Sixth, who was the king of Scotland, and Robert Bruce was a preacher at that time, and he's preaching. And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. They use it as an example of what's going on here, but either way, I it's, think it's, it's just a good thing to remember. <clears throat> uh, James the Sixth of Scotland was n- notoriously rude when it when attending worship services, and, and keep in mind it. In other words, we attend worship service primarily to hear from God, right? It centers around God speaking to us through His Word. <clears throat> so you got someone here who is rude in that he's disruptive. On one occasion, he was seated in the gallery with several courtiers, um, the courtiers, I guess is the right way to say that, while Robert Bruce preached. In his usual form, James began to talk to those around him during the sermon. Bruce paused and the king fell silent. The minister resumed and so did James. Bruce ceased speaking a second time with the same result. When the king committed his third offense, Bruce turned and addressed James directly. And he said, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel and it becomes all petty when it becomes it's becoming for all petty kings of the earth to be silent and so you know very bold of him to say that right but it, it's just a reminder that you know obviously James seventh or sixth was not taking the word of God seriously he came as a show you know he would have called himself a Christian but he had no regard for the preaching of God's word and so it's a similar sin, I think, to what we see here with Saul. And of course, you know, it behooves us to think about how do we approach the preaching of God's word, and not just the preaching, but the reading of it, the personal study of it. Do we take it seriously? Are we listening, or are we thinking about the other things? And do we have a casual disregard for it? Well, you know, I've done my duty, but I really don't have any desire to think about what I have just read or heard. So, it's no surprise that his army is in hiding. Uh, they have gone AWOL in 
you know, he's worried about all this. He, he, we see here that his faith and his uh, confidence wanes from chapter to chapter. He certainly has lost confidence in the Lord at this point. And so he starts to let the circumstances dictate his, not just every, you know, his life, but even his religious duty. We'll see that in the next chapter that uh, his duty before the Lord is affected by, which would make perfect sense that he's not taking the Lord seriously in a, in a way and that affects the way he worships. Many pastors can fall into that trap. You know, right? Churches, churches are going well, not meeting our expectations. And so what are we going to do? Well, let's rock the boat. Let's do something. We've got to do something because preaching the words not having the effect. So let's figure out something else to do, right? And so the problem is that often that means, well, let's, we'll try something different. Let, let's, uh, figure out another way for the church to grow. Um, and the gospel's not working, so we'll try something else. And so, uh, it's just an easy trap to fall into, you know, but a man, you know, I can't keep people saved. I, I can't build this church. Uh, none, no one of us can. And so, if we have confidence in the Lord, we'll do what, what the Lord's told us to do. We won't jump the gun. We won't say, well, you know, the Lord has a business for a while, so what else can we do? Uh, in, in, you know, so we have verse 12, uh, here of, of chapter 13. Saul says, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I have not taught the fame of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So he, he's basically blaming the Lord, which always has that in common, right? I was forced to act anyway. It's God's fault for allowing the problem to occur. I had to do something. And we probably all have felt that way. We At least, okay, maybe not overtly worked it out like that, but things have happened, and so we kind of just ignore whatever the Bible has said about the situation of men, and we've done something uh, that we should not have done. An interesting question might be why this sin was such that it disqualifies Saul while David, and I kind of already alluded to this, that it doesn't seem like all that bad, especially when you think about how that David committed murder and adultery and so forth. And he's described as one after God's own heart while Saul is not, which I think in one sense answers the question. I think the answer is seen in the way each one treats God's word. Saul always justifies himself in disobedience. Later, he will blame the people and the circumstances again in chapter 14 as a good reason to disobey. And the difference at the end of the day is that Saul's not a believer and David is a believer. So David is being kept by the power of God. David is going to exercise a transformed heart even as he sins. Saul never really uh, offers any example of a transformed heart. When David is confronted with his sin, unlike Saul, he genuinely repents and turns away from that. Saul will have remorse at the fact, we'll see with the Amalekites, he'll have remorse when Saul says that God has ripped the kingdom away from you, but Saul never changes. He's the same Saul. So as you look at the overall lifestyle between, not just Saul and David, but between a lost person and a saved person, it's just like we are talking about with in 1 Corinthians 6 last week, you know, and it says, 
uh, field. Thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that a Christian can't steal, but it's not a lifestyle. It's not a justified lifestyle that I I steal because that's who I am, because I, I have to. I can't stop myself in whatever way you justify it. A true Christian is brought under conviction when he sins in those kind of ways. He turns away from that, and it bothers him. Or a lost person is not. It's a lifestyle. And so I think, again, that, that idea of lifestyle kind of helps us understand that. And, of course, God clearly never intended for Saul's line to continue to be kings, and so he will use this disobedience to disqualify him. And, of course, we know that we would soon disqualify ourselves if it was, in fact, that God seals us with the Holy Spirit and that right gives us power. So we're thankful that when we see someone like Saul, we know we don't look at Saul as a believer like we are, that whatever happened to Saul could happen to us. We understand as New Covenant Christians that we are in a much better place and by the grace of God, and we're very thankful for that. So, Remember, David's prayer was for the Lord not take his spirit from him. an Old Testament saint prayer. Saul doesn't seem to have cared much what, unless either way, right? Uh, so what were some of the sins that were involved with what Saul did here? Well, disobedience is the main one, and all these things have that element to it. The fear of man, it causes him to panic. You know, he fears man uh, more than God. We'll, we'll see this in, in, uh, with the Amalekites when he doesn't offer the everything that he was supposed to offer. He blames the people. Uh, he's walking by sight. He's looking at the conditions and making decisions. He's impatient. That's certainly a sin here where he, he doesn't wait. You know, the Lord's being clear to what he's supposed to do. and uh, It doesn't happen on his timetable. He's out of office. By that I mean he offers a sacrifice. It really is not his place to do to start with. Um, it was, it was here. Some say that, well... It doesn't say that he actually did it. He could have had a priest do it, but the, the way it's worded, it makes it sound like he's the one who did this. Um, and then ultimately, he just has no heart for God. And that's, as we've been saying, is the real problem. One thing I would uh, say just before we move on to chapter 14, in case you, uh, your translation, it depends on what translation, especially the, the KJV, um, it says in verse 20, But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his matok, his ox, and his sickle. Uh, we've seen here that the Philistines did not allow the Israelites to have blacksmith tools because they could make those weapons of war. And so the ESV in the newer translation says, And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the uh Uh, for the Matox, the, the third of the shekel, and for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats and so forth. The KJV has that, the, the verse 20, but then turns around verse 21 and says, yet they had a file to sharpen their tools. Well, that, of course, that completely undermines verse 20. The whole point was that they don't have a file. And from what I understand, the word file was mistaken by the translators to mean file, whereas it actually means a price. So just in case you, you read that and you think of what's going on there, uh, that's the way I understand that to be. So we come to chapter 14. 
<clears throat> this chapter records Jonathan and his servants' great victory uh, over the Philistines. Well, let's say great, as we'll read here in just a moment. But it does set a dark cloud over Saul's kingdom uh, as it keeps raining on Saul's parade. Uh, you know, this is what we're going to see here. So let's just start reading. <coughs> Excuse me, in verse uh, verse verse four. <coughs> Saul and his uh, armor bearer were uh, separated this time from everybody else, and uh, they were on a rocky crag, and they could look. There's like a deep gully of some sort, and then over on the other side. There was another high crag, and there was a garrison of Philistines over there. And so in verse 4, it says, Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to a Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sanaa. And the one crag rose to the north in front of Mikdash, and the other was in the south in front of Gibeah. And Jonathan said to his young man, who <clears throat> carry his armor, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving many or by, by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And again, to me, I like that because it exposes Jonathan's heart, his faith in the Lord, he knows that the Lord is the one giving the victory, whether by many or by few. He also has an armor bearer who uh, is willing to sacrifice his own life. He said, basically, he says, I'm with you. Success or not, I'm with you. I, I'm, I'm following you. So he he respects Jonathan. So, again, this is such a great example for us, I think, to follow after. Um, verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this will be a sign for us. And it goes on, they uh, make it known that they're there, and the Philistines say, Hey, why don't you guys come up here, and we will... Uh, teach you a lesson, basically. And so, Jonathan says that's that's the kind of the condition we put on this, and so it's a, it was a sign to him that the Lord uh, was going to give him success. They go up there, and they kill 20 Philistines, uh, uh, just those two. And so, clearly, it was something from the Lord. And, as that, and when they do that, the Philistine army kind of see and somehow what's going on, and it puts them in a panic, and they take off, and Saul's uh, spotters see that, and they say, hey, look, the Philistines seem to be in disarray. Now's the time to attack. So they attack, and they drive the Philistines, um, you know, and they have a great victory over the Philistines. But it's not as great as it could be, because Saul, again, he decides, well, what's the thing to do now as we get ready to fight the Philistines and we want the Lord to be on our side so what are we going to do? And he says, well, cursed be anybody who uh, would eat this day. So one of the most stupid things a general or a king could do 
as his uh, men are getting ready to go into battle, uh, don't eat anything. It's a curse. And, and it's like, well, the Lord's going to give us the victory, and I, I want to do something that kind of, uh, you know, looks religious or whatever. A little bit like Jacob, remember the, the judge who says, well, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my um, house, out of my door, uh, when I go back, if the Lord gives us a victory here, and of course the Lord says, okay, and it's his daughter, right? It's this, this foolish, rash show of faith, show of religion. And uh, so let me just pick, and maybe it was on purpose, maybe he picked something that clearly would, if, if Israel was going to win, uh, and they did so without eating, then it had to be of the Lord, but it's not, it's, it's just silly, and even Jonathan, when he hears about it later on, says that Saul has troubled Israel today for doing such a stupid thing. And uh, it's clear, they do win, but because of their, they're famished, they cannot, that there's a limit to what they're able to do. They have to eventually stop. <clears throat> and uh, then we find out that Saul, Jonathan, uh, he's again separated from everybody. He doesn't hear about this. So when they come to the forest, there's evidently a lot of bees and things going on here. And they find a lot of honey. And Jonathan, you know, who's hungry, stops and he eats it. And uh, he, it says he's revived. It, the, the, the way the Bible always kind of uh, says that is their eyes are livened, right? They become bright. He's, he's, he's uh, refreshed by the honey. The other uh, uh, Israelites see it, but they know better than to eat it. And uh, so when it's all said and done, uh, you know, Jonathan, said, you know, and Israel has... The men are hungry and they're, they're unable to fight anymore. And Jonathan said, what's going on? And the men says, well, your father said curses anyone who eats today. Jonathan says, well, that's ridiculous. You know, why do you do that? <clears throat> so they uh, they all come back. And then the uh, army, uh, when it becomes a, a, a time where they can eat, they make these, uh, they start just slaughtering animals and eating them without uh draining the blood first, which is against the law, because they're famished. And so, again, that causes them to kind of sin according to the covenant. Saul hears about that and says, well, don't do that. So he, so he built an altar. It says the first time they ever built an altar. And he starts sacrificing animals properly, draining the blood, and then letting them eat as they should. Uh, but again, you know, it's the first time he's ever built an altar. So he never built an altar to worship the Lord, as was generally what Israel you know, godly Israelite would do. But now in order to kind of correct his mistake, he built an altar and does that. And, then, and I'm kind of paraphrasing the rest of this chapter. I guess we could just read it, but uh, either way. Um, and then, uh, he, he, you know, he, he asked, he said, let's go up and pursue the uh, Philistine to finish this thing. And uh, the uh, priests say, no, let's not. In other words, it seems to indicate that, well, Maybe we need to ask the Lord first. And so they asked the Lord probably with the human removing those two stones. And uh, the Lord uh, is kind of silent about this. And Saul knows something's wrong. And so he says, okay, someone sinned. You know, I guess I think it's just kind of the, the, what they would take for granted here with the 
conditions. Someone's done wrong here. What's going on? And eventually, through a process of elimination, come, come to find out it's uh, Jonathan. And he finds out that Jonathan had eaten. So what does Saul do? You know, much like Jake Taft, Jeff Taft, you know, you make this ridiculous vow, and now it means in some way your daughter's got to be the, the, the sacrifice in one way. That instead of repenting and saying, Lord, let the curse come upon me, not this innocent person, Saul says, well, Jonathan needs to die because he broke the curse that I, that I put on everybody. And at this point, the soldiers say, no, there's no way you're going to kill Jonathan. And Saul has a good enough sense to realize, okay, well, but he backed off on that and they did not do that. And so he's left at the end of the chapter 14 with 600 men, a, a incomplete victory. It was a great victory, but not as much as it could be. And that's what they were going to find with Saul, that he's going to fight. In fact, it says this in, cha- in chapter 14. He's going to fight the Philistines and have bat- wins against the Philistines the entire time he's king, but he's never going to have full victory over the Philistines. And it's just no surprise. That will come to David while when he is the king. So that's kind of what uh, takes place in uh, chapter 14. Um, so, again, we see here a Jonathan, a great sign, of, I think a great example of faith. He doesn't presume. He says he knows that the Lord, he knows that it's right for him to fight the Philistines, but he knows that the Lord has every right to give him victory in this case or to not. Uh, you know, there are those today who say that if you have true faith, you would never pray if God wills, if Jesus wills, you should never pray like that because that, uh, that's hesitating. Well, I'm sorry, but I think that there's places in scripture where we see indication that that is the way you should pray. Certainly Jonathan is an example of that. So there are some things the Bible is very clear on that we that it would be wrong to say if Jesus will. You don't pray, well, Lord, should I sin in this case? Should I do wrong there? Well, no, you don't pray like that because you, God's already given the answer. So, so that would be wrong in a sense um, for you to pray that. But a lot of things that times we pray, we, we don't know where God is going to go in the answer and what so we pray Lord this is what I believe is the right thing to, to ask to pray for this is what I believe is the right direction to go but if it's not your will then I accept that as well and, and we, we understand that and so you don't want to get caught up in this idea that well you can never pray hesitantly never pray uh, as if you're not sure because we're not always sure about these things sometimes I think again we, we go too far what the Bible actually teaches. Um, so, again, what we see here, though, the difference between Jonathan and his father is that Jonathan knows what his duty is, and he wants to be out doing it, doing something. He's praying for the, he's praying, he's, he's you know, meditating, no doubt, on what the right, what the Word of God says in his situation. <laughs> but Saul. Is always waiting for everything to be just right, and, and, and he's always hesitating. 
because he he has no assurance because he, his motivations are never right. He's not taking the word of God seriously and so forth. So I think there's a there's that contrast between these two. And so in verse six, you know, Jonathan says, "Come, let us go over and the, the, the fight these uncircumcised, which was the right thing to do." But he knows that the Lord might not give him success, and, and yet the Lord does. So there's no indication here that it's wrong for him to think that way. You know, he certainly doesn't say that, well, you know, I've been spiritual lately, so I'm sure I'm confident that God's going to bless me in this endeavor. No, I think that's, again, a mistake that, that we, so many people make. They, they think that they can look at themselves and somehow, by the way they're living, determine what God should do for them. And again, it's kind of the old health and wealth gospel routine. Uh, no. Calamity might come upon me just like it might come upon the lost person. Prosperity might come upon me. But, but how I'm living is not what my, my Bible, right? And, and so I think, again, we see another example of that. He knows that he might fail in this particular case, but that's okay because the honor of the Lord is what, what's driving him. Um, we need to kind of close up here. Get, get, time's getting short. Um, in verse 24, Saul hears what's going on as the Lord has caused this great confusion with the Philistines, and so he gathers the people to fight. Uh, there's some debate as to whether Saul makes this curse because um, the battle was hard, so he's they had already joined the battle, and the things are hard, so he makes this curse, hoping that God will kind of use it to spur God on to, to, to give them victory. I, I tend to not think that's what he's doing here. Uh, he, I think, as some see his curse, as the reason why Israel was hard-pressed, and I think that would be was probably what really took place there. Uh, both might be true. But, of course, Jonathan is not there and doesn't know, doesn't hear about that, so he wisely eats the honey, and we've talked about um, this already. But he's doing what helps him fight for God. Saul's trying to force God into taking care of them even when they do foolish things, almost like a test. And the curse is presuming on the Lord. I I can do something foolish, I can be careless, and God will pick up the pieces. Or or let you know, maybe we perhaps he's doing this with the idea that, well, when God fixes my mess, he'll be glorified. You know, and I think some churches have done that, you know, not in Christians. They step out in faith by spending money foolishly in a way that doesn't make any real financial sense, but they don't have to. And, well, thanks, because we've acted in faith, but of course faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So I've always sometimes felt that, you know, that's that's pretty loose with the idea of faith. Yeah, you've stepped out, all right. But now, if it is that, do we not say that's presumption? That we kind of put ourselves in a predicament, and the Lord doesn't want our church to fail, doesn't want us to make a bad name among the community, so the Lord's going to have to somehow supply that need. Well, if you want to say we're, we're going to presume on the Lord, okay, fine. But to say we've stepped out on faith, when you don't know that the Lord wants to do that or not, I think is is 
you know, I think a lot of churches have gotten themselves in trouble and made a bad name for themselves because they have done that. And, and again, every situation must be carefully thought through, uh, what our motivations are. But generally speaking, when I've seen that, the motivation has been uh, questionable, uh, where we have done things that really make no financial sense because, well, we're Christians and God will take care of us. And again, if, 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 if you quit your job because it's a job that you can't do by, as a Christian, I don't believe I can do this anymore, and you quit for that reason, okay, now you stepped out in faith because you know that the Lord, from biblical principles, that this is no something I can no longer be engaged in. Now, and the Lord will take care of you, right? But that's different, I think, than just acting like Saul is acting here. So, anyway, that's one of the things that I, as I read this, um, I I think that is maybe something we can uh, apply in the way we live our own life. Calling things living by faith, when living by faith always involves obeying the word of God and trusting that the Lord will take care of us when we obey his word, right? Not when we presume or tempt him in some way. Someone said that this whole account, starting in chapter 13, we see three successes of Jonathan and three follies of Saul. You kind of, you know, look at it one way. One wonders why Saul was even chosen as king and not Jonathan. But of course, what you got to remember is that it was never God's intention for Saul to continue on anyway. It's always going to be David, so even if it's Jonathan, it, it wouldn't have, it would have had to have ended at some point. <clears throat> but it does remind us that um, we are in a battle in this world, so we we got to make it a point um, that um, well, let me, let me just kind of skip ahead here. <clears throat> Why does Jonathan have a short life and never rules as as his father does when Jonathan is clearly a man who is after God's own heart in a sense. This is a man who's godly. Well, for one reason, as I said, his kingdom, this kingdom wasn't going to last anyway. And it's not about Jonathan. It's about the Lord. It's the Lord's kingdom, and Jonathan is a servant in the kingdom. What God does with us is his business. And if we try to judge everything based on what we perceive as just and fair, we'll drive ourselves crazy. So if we look at this and we're thinking, well, Jonathan, a much better man. He would have been a much better king than his father. Why did God let Saul be the king? Well, that's God's business. And again, you, you can look out at everybody on earth, all seven billion of us, and say, well, if that doesn't seem to be fair. Why does that person have uh, this, you know, thing, and the other person doesn't? When this person is a better person, because it's not about fairness. I mean, there, you know, we 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 want there to be fairness as we as much as we can, but if this is God's world, and He's going to put people into situations for His own reasons. And so, if you, it's a again, it's an extreme form of legalism where we think that. Everybody, we can figure out what everybody should have and, and how everything should be. And Jonathan gives us a, a good example of that. David all along was the one that the Lord was going to enthrone. And when Jonathan 
finds that out, he's okay with it because he's a servant. This is the attitude of a useful servant. Jonathan is someone who commands respect and loyalty and friendship. His armor bearer is willing to die for him, but he's okay with the secondary role that he's been put. And so while history will see Jonathan as a loser, you know, in man's way of looking at things, because he never got to be king, he will die young. God needs servants like Jonathan. He doesn't need winners uh, in the worldly sense. He needs someone to, to obey him, to serve him, even if it means uh, a short life or not not having that much. God's, God's busy bringing the Messiah into the world. How silly would it be for Jonathan to say, well, I want to be king. I'm better than my, my father. I'd be a better king than my fair and father. And it, You know, it's not fair that I've got to suffer for what my dad's done. But no, we don't find any of that in Jonathan because Jonathan's a sermon of the Lord and he understands that. <clears throat> and, of course, Jonathan is enjoying heaven right now. And that's what you got to keep in mind. It does, it, there will be no fairness because fair, the only thing that's fair about any of us is that we all should be in hell right now, right? That's being fair. What we need is the grace of God. And so Jonathan is enjoying the grace of God now where his father is not. So how silly for a few years on earth if Jonathan was bitter for his situation, uh, you know, he's going to come to end, he's, he dies in battle, he dies young, he never gets to succeed his father. How silly to be worried about any of that stuff, considering where he's been for the last 3,000 years or so, right? From our point. So, it's just a good thing. I, there's just a lot of good things to think about when you think about someone like Jonathan and, you know, he, he had, had it difficult in some ways, but the Lord always makes everything right. We will stop there this week. We've kind of uh, passed our time anyway. Any questions? Heavenly Father, for your word to us and uh, for the uh, things that we read in it, and we ask, Lord, that you would uh, enlighten us, that we would uh, be able to uh, serve you better. Lord, we, in one sense, we, we understand that the word of God is precious like a honeycomb and that it does enlighten us, much like Jonathan was enlightened. His eyes were enlightened. It enlightens us. It gives us uh, an understanding that without it we are lost and we are stumbling around in the darkness. And so we're thankful that one day you made yourself plain to us. And we have you now that you'll never be taken away. We ask that we would be profitable servants while we are here. In Jesus' name, amen.